Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 15. Judges chapter 15. A few weeks ago, we were going through John's gospel in our morning worship, and we're in that section in John 11, where Caiaphas says how it's expedient for us to deliver up one for the nation. Now, John goes on to tell us that he was spo- uh, spoke as the high priest by the Holy Spirit. What he said was actually true. And it invited the comparison with this type of Jesus in Samson. Samson is delivered up by Judah out of expediency, and he and ultimately dies, and in his death saves a lot of people as a result of that. So he is a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to his own, his own did not receive him. Samson was a God-appointed judge over Israel, and his own did not receive him. And in Judges 15, it's not so much the wickedness of the Philistines that's the problem. It's the treachery of the Judahites that I think is the problem. As of uh, presently, we have external threats. Uh, So did Israel. They had external threats. But we also have internal threats. And when you look at the history of Israel, sometimes those internal threats were a lot more malicious and a lot more difficult to deal with. Well, Samson dealt with both. So we're going to read Judges 15 and then look at this in some detail. So beginning in verse 1. After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. And he said, let me go into my wife, into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. Then Samson went and caught 300 foxes and he and he took uh, uh, he took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. Uh, you know how to turn that off? I don't want my Bible pages blowing here. So verse 5, when he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain, as well as the fin- vineyards and olive groves. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson said to them, since you would do a thing like this, I will surely surely take revenge on you. And after that, I will cease. So he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. Then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Now the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and deployed themselves against Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? So they, they answered, we have come up to arrest Samson to do to him as he has done to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. But they said to him, we have come down to arrest you that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Then Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. So they spoke to him, saying, No, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand. But we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. 
and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found, found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it, and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. And so it was when he had finished speaking that he threw the jawbone from his hand and called that place Ramath-Lehi. Then he became very thirsty. So he cried out to the Lord and said, you have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi and water came out and he drank and his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore, he called its name En-Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our blessed God and Holy Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for that absolute truth that you've given us from Genesis to Revelation. We confess and know that it's given by inspiration of God, that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. We thank you for the Old Testament and the promises and the anticipation. We thank you as well for types like Samson, who prefigures our blessed Savior. And God, as we move through this passage tonight, may we ponder the truth, may we be affected by it, and may we be further conformed unto the image of our blessed Savior. We thank you that he gave his life on behalf of sinners. As the Apostle Paul says, he loved us and he gave himself for us. And in this we greatly rejoice. Forgive us now for all sin and unrighteousness. Cleanse us in the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, as we look at the period of the judges, the judges were more like uh, kings. It was a time when there were no kings in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But God stationed judges over the people. And again, they functioned more like monarchs than like a judge you'd bring a particular case unto. And the Samson narrative takes place in chapters 13 to 16. We have basically the birth of Samson in chapter 13, his marriage in Timnah in chapter 14, his victory at Jawbone Height here in chapter 15. 15, and ultimately his victory in Gaza. If you look back to chapter 13, you'll notice the purpose for which God gave Samson to Israel. If you notice in chapter 13 at verse 5, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Very similar to the birth narrative of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is he who will save his people from their sins. So in other words, Samson is given as a savior to the nation of Israel. So when we look at this particular man, I think there's a lot, a lot of sort of conflicting reports concerning him. Consider the statement of a man, uh, two men, Dillard and Longman. They wrote an Old Testament introduction, which is used in conservative seminaries. It's used in conservative Bible colleges. I'm not here to sort of castigate those guys. If you have this book, go home and burn it. But they have a take on Samson that I don't think does justice to to the narrative. They say concerning Samson, he is full of self-indulgence and refuses to control his sexual appetite. I think that's the prevalent view of Samson in the modern church today. And I think a lot of that is owing to his request for a wife from the Philistines in chapter 13. Well, the author tells us, the narrator tells us that this was of the Lord. Chapter 14, notice at verse 4, his parents are not pleased that he asks for a wife from the Philistines. But in 14.4, his 
his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. God wants Samson near Philistines to do what Samson does to Philistines, to kill them, to dispossess the land of these Canaanites, these Philistine wretches, so that Israel can take or acquire what God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When it comes to chapter 16, just giving you a sort of an overview of the life of Samson. Notice in chapter 16 at verse 1, another place where I think people often see sexual indulgence and a lack of self-control. Now, Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. Now, that's a convention used when it speaks concerning sexual congress, but not always. In fact, I would suggest that a parallel passage to Judges 16 is Joshua 2. Remember when Joshua sends out the men to reconnaissance or on a reconnaissance mission to go to Jericho, survey the situation, and see if Israel can, in fact, defeat them. Where do those men go? They go to the house of Rahab the harlot. They went into her. Does anybody conclude that they had relations with her? No, typically not. Why do we conclude that Samson did? Samson was lawfully married. His wife was then murdered. He doesn't actually have sexual congress with this harlot in Gaza. And then he marries Delilah. He's not the wretch or the bumbling wretch that is described here as full of self-indulgence and refuses to control his sexual appetite. That's not the case. Now, one final thing before we expound on chapter 15. Four times in this brief cycle concerning Samson, we read that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Again, when in Scripture do we find a man that it said four times that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him? Look at 13.25. The Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. Notice in 14.6, we see uh, uh, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. Notice in 14.19, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men, took their apparel and gave the, gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. Now notice, so his anger was aroused and he went back up to his father's house. It wasn't anger that drove him against the Philistines. It was anger that sent him to his father-in-law's house so that he could fetch his wife. It was the spirit of the Lord upon him by which he killed Philistines. And then again, once he meets the Philistines in this particular chapter in 1514, notice when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. We don't have a bumbling fool who is governed by his sexual lusts. We have a man controlled and filled by the Holy Spirit doing the Lord's work. Uh, Samson knew that a good Philistine was a dead Philistine, and that's why God raised him up to do the work of saving Israel. So I want to look at three things in this passage. First, the betrayal by his father-in-law in verses 1 to 8, the treachery of his countrymen in verses 9 to 13, and then finally the victory over his enemies in verses 14 to 20. But first, the betrayal by his father-in-law. This is closely connected to chapter 14. Remember, uh, Samson has this riddle. He's not only a man who knows that a good Philistine is a dead one, but he's a punster. He likes to write rhymes. He likes to sing. He probably liked to dance. He probably liked to eat. He probably enjoyed the good gifts of God most high. So he has this riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. So the Philistines converge upon his wife and say, we want to know the riddle, because there was a, a wager in terms of garments. Well, of course, they converge upon her, and then he says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not, not have saw 
solved my riddle. And so the father-in-law takes his wife back to his house. And that brings us to verse 1 in chapter 15, the time indicated. Notice after a while in the time of wheat harvest. That's important because when he sends these foxes and the torches against the standing grain in, uh, uh, in this particular region, it is a blow to their economy. It's also a blow to their religion because Dagon is the god of grain. So after a while in the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. That would have been akin to bringing flowers and chocolates. That was a reconciliation technique. That was, I want to be back with my wife. Again, if you parse through the text, Samson is certainly not what he's described as. He's a godly man. As I told our church, if you killed a lion on the way home from church tonight, what would you do? You would take selfies with that lion and you'd post it on Facebook and you would never stop talking about the time that you killed a lion with your bare hands. Samson doesn't do that. Samson has every right to be mad at his bride because she betrayed him into the hands of the Philistines, but he brings a goat to her in order to reconcile with her. So Samson is not the man you've been told that he is. He's a godly man, not a perfect man, not a flawless man. There's only one of those, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's holy, harmless, and undefiled. So he goes to try to make peace with his wife. Notice, he says to the father, let me go in into my wife, into her room, but her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. Talk about wretched. Talk about evil. Talk about godless. Look at how the Philistine culture treated women. He's about to give his other daughter to a man she doesn't even know. Samson, however, responds in terms of fighting against the Philistines. And that brings us to verses three, uh, uh, 3 and following. Notice, Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. Then Samson went and caught 300 foxes. He took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain, as well as the vineyards and olive groves. Again, a good blow at their economy. It affected them where they lived. They needed grain. They needed wheat. They needed to eat. But as well, it was a strike at their religion. Dagon was supposed to be the protector, the provider of wheat and, and, and grain and things to sustain the people. But that's gone now. And if we ask the question, because I've thought through this, how did he do this? This is a difficult feat to try and imagine. I'm not going to say do it right now because you won't hear anything else I say subsequent. But sometime, maybe tomorrow, think about how does Samson do what Samson does in this particular instance? One commentator, I think, is right. He says, how Samson accomplished this is a greater mystery, but it fits into the picture of a man who kills a lion single-handedly, kills 30 Philistines, breaks brand new ropes that bind him, slays a thousand Philistines with a jawbone, and brings a house down over thousands of reveling Philistines. In other words, we may not know specifically how he did it, but that he does it, the, the Holy Spirit convinces or convicts us of the fact. And then notice the Philistines 
Philistine response on the heels of this. They say, who has done this? They answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. This is what they threatened if he had not told the, uh, if she had not told the, the, the riddle back in chapter 14. So they make good on this threat, and now they kill his wife, and they kill his father-in-law. So how do you think Samson responds to this? Do you think Samson says, well, you know, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. That's just the way that things happen. That's just them besting me at this particular point. Again, brethren, you have to understand something about the judges in Israel. They were protectors. They were defenders. They were king-like over the people. They ruled and reigned and protected the people from foreign invasion. So when they deal this blow to him, they are in essence declaring war upon Israel. And so Samson meets this with further violence. Notice what he says. Verse 7, since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you. And after that, I will cease. So he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. Then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Etah. I don't know exactly what this hip and thigh with a great slaughter. I think the NIV translates or trans gives the sense of it. If it doesn't translate it well, it gives the sense. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. So that's the situation. That's the dilemma. That's the problem. So Samson has dealt a blow to the Philistines. Now the Philistines respond, and this is where we see the treachery of his countrymen in verses 9 to 13. Before we look specifically at the Philistines in Judah, we ought to think a bit about the larger context in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is about cycles. Well, it's not about cycles, but it's structured around cycles. Basically, the children of Israel, they sin against God. And then God oppresses them by a foreign enemy. The people then repent, and then God delivers by the hand of a particular judge. That's what happens in each of these judge narratives. Some are longer, some are shorter, but that's the uh, particular situation by which the narrative is structured. They sin, they're oppressed, they repent, and then God gives a deliverer. Now, look at chapter 13 in verses 1 and 2 just to get an idea of what's going on at the time of Samson. Notice in chapter 13 at verses 1 and 2. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Notice that it never indicates here that there's a cry of distress. There's no sort of uh, demonstration of repentance There's no sort of pain involved in what they are currently facing. We already read in 14.4 that the Philistines had dominion over Israel at this particular time. I'm going somewhere with this, and I want you to see, yes, the wickedness of the Philistines, and yes, the goodness of Samson, but it's the treachery of Judah that we need to ponder here for just a moment. Because here's where my fear is with reference to the modern church, is that we're more like the Judahites at the time of Samson than we are like Samson at the time of Samson. And that, my brothers and sisters, is problematic. 
So if we look back in Judges at one of the other, a couple of the other cycles, look back to chapter 3. Chapter 3 at the time of Othniel. Look specifically at verse 9. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel. Notice in 3.15, but when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Look at chapter 4 at verse 3. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Look at chapter 6 at the time of Gideon, specifically at verse 7. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, and then again in chapter 10, specifically at verse 10. You'll see this theme, these cycles, sin, oppression, repentance. And the repentance isn't always we've sinned against you and we want to get right. It may just be a cry of distress. This hurts and we don't like it. And nevertheless, God does intervene for them and on their behalf. So 10, 10 again, the children of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. That's absent when we get to the time of Samson. So Judges 13, 1 and 2, they're under Philistine dominion. They are under Philistine oppression. But here's the rub. They're okay with it. They like it. They've made peace with it. Their problem isn't the Philistines as their lords. Their problem isn't the Philistines as their masters. The problem isn't the Philistines and their dominion over them. The problem is Samson. You're upsetting the apple cart. You're causing problems for us. We, we don't like that. You, you've perhaps heard that phrase that's used today. It's called cultural appropriation. The world means it's sort of like this. If you like Chinese food and you're white, you're a racist. If you wear a sweater that originates in Africa, you, you must be a, a racist because that's cultural appropriation. I'm going to use that phrase cultural appropriation with reference to the church. Are we under dominion from something other than Christ himself and we're okay with it? Are we okay with the sexual mutilation of children? Are we okay with the abortion of children? Are we okay with the euthanizing of, uh, 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 of elderly folk and infirm folk? And well, you know, let's just extend the, the net and let, let's just give it to everybody. Have we assimilated a godless culture like the Judahites at the time of Samson? I think these questions need to be asked, and I think we need to reckon with that. So back to Judges 15, verses 9 to 13. Notice there is an abundance of cowardice on the part of Judah. So notice in verse 9, now the Philistines went up, encamped in Judah, and deployed themselves against Lehi. This was basically a declaration of war. They came in an aggressive posture, and the Judahites understood this, so the Judahites go out to sort of dipl uh, diplomatically say, what's up? What's the problem? What, what's happening here? And that's what you get there in verse 10. The men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? What, what's happened here? We thought the arrangement was good. We pay our tribute. We color within the lines. We, we, we accept your culture. We accept your God. We're okay with Dagon. We'll, we'll bow to him if necessary just to keep the status quo in check. So they answered, according to 10b, we have come up to arrest Samson to do to him as he has done to us. Now, what do you think should have been the response? The response should have been to call Samson to lead them right then into battle against these Philistines. But that's not what they do. 
That is not what they do at all. Notice what they do. They don't confront the Philistines. They turn from the Philistines and they go and confront Samson. And look at their cowardice. They don't take just a handful of fellows to meet with Samson. They take 3,000 men. They understand that the man who is able to kill a lion with his bare hands, the man who's able to dispatch Philistines like he's having a glass of water, is not somebody that you can easily tame. So 3,000 Judahites come to Samson and look at what they say. Verse 11, Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? They made peace with their dominion. And then notice they identify with their, their masters. What is this you have done to us? This is brazen cowardice in the face of, of, a, of a perceived threat. You're to stand up against this kind of stuff. You're to back the man that God has stationed to lead. You are to back the brothers that are faithfully ministering the word of God and not kowtow to whatever the Philistines and their lords might command. This is absolutely disgusting on the part of the Judahites. I expect Philistines to be Philistines. I expect the world to be godless and try to destroy the Samsons. But I don't expect the Judahites to turn against Samson and to come after him and say, we don't like the fact that you're causing some problems for us. We don't like this heat that you're bringing down to bear, uh, bringing down to bear on us. They send an army against Samson and not the Philistines. They embrace their subjection to the Philistines. Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? Listen to Davis. Davis says, sad, sad. Words. Here is a people who have acquiesced to bondage, who can no longer imagine anything beyond the status quo, who see deliverance as a threat to peace, who look upon Yahweh's enemies as their rightful lords. Israel is a people who can forsake Yahweh instantly, but who would not think of being faithless to the Philistines. What a pitiful question. Who do you think you are, Samson? And this is pretty consistent with human nature. Remember Numbers 13 and 14? Another reconnaissance mission. Moses is told to send out 12 spies to recon the land of Canaan. What happens? They go recon the land of Canaan. What's the report? It's a good land. It's got good fruit. It's got all kinds of food. But there's some giants in the land. There's these pesky giants. Well, there's two spies, Joshua and Caleb, that are ready to go right now. In fact, Caleb says, let's go at once. Why? Because he understood that God had promised to give the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, the narrator, Moses, tells us that at the beginning of Numbers 13. Go, go spy out the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So the two spies say, let's go at once. What do the ten spies say? Well, they revise their report. They say, well, you know, it's not actually that good of a land. And there are those pesky giants in there. So when they come back with that report, guess who the congregation sides with? Do they stand behind Joshua and Caleb and say, let's go at once and take the land? No. They stand behind the ten whiners. They stand behind the ten grumblers. They stand behind the ten complainers. And they say, oh, no, we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to mess with the status quo. Well, you know what happened to them. There was great destruction on that wilderness generation for their faithlessness. Again, it wasn't a matter of military savvy and might and the ability to down, you know, godless giants. The Lord God Most High had promised to give them this land. Well, you see the same thing here happening in Judah. Notice, they expressed their desire to arrest him and deliver him to death. Look at how the narrative continues. 
So we have this question, what is this you have done to us? And then at the end of verse 13, as he said, and, and he said to them, basically invokes the golden rule. Bless God for Samson here. As they did to me, so I have done to them. <laughs> Treat your neighbor as you are treated. I think that's a pretty clear sort of exposition of the golden rule, Samson style. Notice in verse 12, but they said to him, we have come down to arrest you that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Matthew Henry said, cowardly, unthankful wretches, fond of their fetters and in love with their servitude. Davis reminds us that it's the tribe of Judah in Judges 1 that begins the task of conquest. The, 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 the tribe that went out and forayed in the battle has now turned and capitulated. She has betrayed her God. She has betrayed the Savior that God ordained. He came to his own and his own received him not. They say to him, uh, they say to him, we have come down to arrest you that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Then Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. I love this response. They assure him of their innocence. Oh, oh no, 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 we're not, we're not going to kill you, Samson. I mean, come on. What, what do you think? What, like we're ghouls or we're monsters or something? We're not going to kill you. We're just going to tie you up bind you and hand you to men who are going to kill you. But, but, but we're innocent. See, gutless men, cowardly men, sound this foolish. They sound this incomprehensible. Anybody reading this narrative has to see that this is absolute folly. We're not going to kill you, but we are going to tie you, and we're going to hand you into the hands of men that are going to kill you. That is exactly what they say. So they spoke to him saying, no, 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 but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand, but we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. I think Kyle and Dalich get it right here. They say, instead of recognizing in Samson a deliverer whom the Lord had raised up for them and crowding round him that they might smite their oppressors with his help and drive them out of the land, the men of Judah were so degraded that they cast this reproach at Samson. This is what degradation looks like. This is what it looks like. Well, well we're going to just capitulate here. We're not going to make a big deal over here. We're going to let them dictate there. We're going to just go along to get along. Brethren, I'm not against that to some degree. If they say put a fire exit sign over the fire exit, hey, it's not sin, sure. But when they command you to close the church because of a virus, at that point, we must dare to be a Samson. We must stand and resist our lords, our earthly lords, because our sovereign Lord commands us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the custom of some. Now, that's just one real obvious sort of, a, of an application that's pretty consistent with what we've seen over the last several years here in the Western world. But you can extrapolate from that a whole host of things. I mentioned the big sins, euthanasia, abortion, sexual perversion. Brethren, there's a, a, a church, I use that term lightly or loosely, in our community that had on their sign, Every Child Matters. Well, I was suspicious about that proposition, so I emailed them and said, What's your church's stance on abortion? Oh, well, you know, that's not really for us to say. We don't take a position there. Oh, so you mean only politically expedient children matter? Not all children. C come on. That, that can't ever be, could it? 
This whole idea that we see in terms of the church sliding, declining, leaving her sovereign head to capitulate to the Philistines because we don't want to make waves. We're we're quite okay with their dominion. We're quite okay with their rules. We're quite okay with the way that they've chosen to govern us. Again, brethren, I'm not suggesting make problems where where they aren't, but I am suggesting that at some point, somewhere along the line, each and every one of us need to dare to be a Samson. We sing that song, dare to be a Daniel. There ought to be a dare to be a Samson. Samson wasn't going to capitulate. Samson was going to deliver Israel. uh, Samson was going to defend his people against Philistine oppression. And that's precisely how the narrative ends. Look at the triumph over his enemies in verses 14 to 20. Verse 14, when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. And brethren, this has got to be a scene. You ever read your Bible and you kind of wished you had been there? Boy, you'd really like to watch this. I mean, the thought of a man with the jawbone of an ass slaying a thousand men? I mean, come on. That had to be quite impressive. That had to be absolutely stunning in terms of watching. But look at the, 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 the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. Please don't miss those cues in the, in the narration. Please don't miss the fact that God is for Samson here. He's not for Judah. He's not saying, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Don't, don't upset the apple cart. Don't, don't mess with the status quo, Judah. You just, you just bow to your lords in the, in the Philistine camp. You, you just do what they say and deliver up Samson. The fact that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson does what? It confirms that Samson's right. It confirms that Samson is doing the will of God. It confirms that what Samson has in terms of his prerogative and in terms of his purpose is absolutely spot on. That Samson's people did not see that and that God nonetheless delivered him, uh, delivered them through Samson is absolute grace. These people did not deserve this deliverance. These people deli- uh, deserve the Philistines cutting their throats, putting them in ditches and dealing with them in Philistine manner. So the Spirit of God comes mightily upon him. He is in power. The might of the Philistines is no match for Samson. The, 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 the treachery of Judah is no match for Samson. It's not that God says, well, you know, let's have a, a vote amongst the Judahites and see whether or not we want Samson to win. No, God's going to win. God is going to vi- uh, uh, demonstrate his power and glory, and he is going to deliver his people, even against their will at this point. Now, notice the deliverance from the Lord in verses 14c to 17. Biblical narration doesn't always do what we want it to do. I've just said, I wish I could see this scene. The narrators don't do that. They don't give you all the the, the graphic details. They don't tell you what that looked like. I mean, I've thought about it. Say I'm on, you know, Philistine number 683. I still got a long way to go, brethren. I've still got a lot to do. There's a lot of Philistines that need dispatching. What's going on in the mind of, uh, of Samson? There had to be an exchange of bodily fluids. He had to be covered with blood. I mean, he's not shooting them from a sniper's perch. He's not, you know, the mile-long sniper guy. He's got the jawbone of a donkey. Notice the narrator tells us it's a fresh one. Why do you think he does that? Because a brittle one would would crack or, or break when I drove it into the head of Philistine number one. 
has to be the fresh jawbone of an ass in order for him to accomplish the task of dispatching a thousand of that. So those details are there. They do confirm the veracity of the narrative, but it doesn't give us the graphic sort of Hollywood depiction that some of us might like. Notice he kills a thousand men. Verse 15, he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Now, indulge me for a moment. I remember when I first preached this at our church, I'm the kind of guy that I'm not even sure I'd pick up a, the, the, the jawbone of a donkey. I'm not sure if I saw it laying there, would I pick up the jawbone of a donkey? I don't know. I, maybe I would, thinking Samson, but that's not my thing, right? Certainly the thought of picking up the jawbone of a donkey and driving it into the heads of a thousand Philistine men is not something that's in my wheelhouse. You know, he's a unique individual. He is a savior raised for a particular task, and he does that task very well. But not only that, you killed the thousand men with the jawbone of an ass, what would you do? Well, you'd be thirsty. Well, the text tells us that, and we'll see that in just a moment. But before that, Samson composes a pun. It's time for a pun. That's what he does in verse 16. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. Moffat translates it this way. With the jawbone of an ass, I have piled them in a mass. It was something like that. It was something humorous. It was something clever. It was something funny after dispatching a thousand men. And then that brings us to this particular place where he's thirsty. So verse 17, and so it was when he had finished speaking that he threw the jawbone from his hand and called that place Ramath-Lehi. Again, another sign that he's not like us. We'd sell it on eBay. We'd put it online. Certainly this relic, certainly this, this weapon would be worth lots of money. Samson has no truck with that kind of thinking. He's done with his task. He throws the jawbone down. And then in verses 18 and 19, notice the acknowledgement by the servant of the Lord. He's got this physical distress. Not that you needed to know 18a, because you probably should have already assumed it. Then he became very thirsty. Really? After, you know, killing a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass? That's kind of redundant. Of course he's thirsty. Of course he needs water. Of course he wants a drink. And it's just here that the church gets a little bit judgmental about the way he prays. We get just a little bit judgmental about his arrogance. Listen to the way Samson prays. He says, you have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? Does God get offended with that type of praying? Does God say, you know, you need to reformulate your prayer in a much more holy way? Don't forget adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, and supplication. Make sure you put it in its proper context. No, God answers him without delay, without hesitation. What is Samson doing? He is expressing his dependence upon God. You've sustained me as I've wielded this jawbone of an ass to get rid of these thousand uncircumcised men. You're going to let me die of thirst? What's God say? Well, no, I'm not going to let you die of thirst, Samson. You've earned that drink of water, and that's precisely what comes to him. He acknowledges the Lord's hand in the victory. You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. Again, something unlike us. You know, I was, I was pretty awesome that day. 
all my training, all my proper eating, my nutritional needs that I had, you know, I, I weighed out in milligrams, my protein, you know, my macronutrients each day. And, and based on that, based on my good numbers in terms of squat and bench and all that sort of thing, I had the prowess, I had the wherewithal, I had the ability, I, I saw it was a fresh jawbone of that. He doesn't do that. That's exactly how we are. Samson would not have used Facebook the way that we use Facebook. He would not have tweeted the way that we tweet. We are narcissistic. We like attention. We like everybody to praise us. But when Samson comes to pray to God, he acknowledges that the deliverance came from God. He doesn't say, I've done this. I killed these Philistines. I've engaged in this victory. I'm the great deliverer of Israel. No, Lord, you, you've granted this. You've given this. And based on that, based on the fact that there's a thousand uncircumcised men no longer polluting your earth, no longer lording it over your people, you going to let me die of thirst? Well, no, Samson, not going to let you die of thirst at all. He acknowledges his dependence upon the Lord. Lord. Davis says, here is Samson dependent on Yahweh. Here is the Savior confessing that he needs saved. We have repeatedly heard that Samson's power comes from Yahweh's spirit. But in case these fail to register, we surely cannot miss the picture. Samson is anything but self-sufficient. He's not the guy you've been told he is. Just read the text. Just read the narrative. Just read Judges 13 to 16 and ask yourself the question, is this a man filled with self-indulgence? Is this a man governed by his sexual appetites? The answer is a resounding no. He's a God-fearing man fulfilling his particular purpose in delivering his people from Philistine oppression. To that end, he's supplied by the Spirit of God four times to engage in this particular activity. He's a good and godly man, and that's why he's in Hebrews 11. The hall of faith records Samson. Why? Because he's this good of a man, by God's grace, doing the will of the Lord. So God gives him the water. Verse 19, God split the, the, the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore he called its name Enhakor, which is in Lehi to this day, and he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. That's a good summary statement concerning his judgeship. 20 years. 20 years he protected. 20 years he defended. 20 years he ruled over them. 20 years he served his God faithfully, doing what the Lord had called him to do. And in the midst of that, his own countrymen betrayed him. His own countrymen defected from him. His own countrymen had wanted to have nothing to do with him except to deliver him up to be killed. Do you see Christ here? Do you see Jesus here? Do you see one who's come to his own and his own did not receive him? Do you see one that is shunned and and rejected and resisted and abused by his countrymen? Instead of praising and glorifying and honoring him, what do they say in that Passion Week? Away with him, away with him, crucify him. When Pilate proffers a deal with them, Pilate had more wherewithal with reference to the state or condition of Jesus than his own countrymen did. Pilate's in a, between a rock and a hard I'm not defending that wretch. He was another coward and a wicked man. But he had the, 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 the ability to rightly discern that there was nothing wrong with Jesus. Luke's gospel tells us thrice that, that Pilate confesses, I, I find no fault with him. I find no fault with him. I find no fault with him. And then, of course, you have in Matthew's gospel, Pilate's wife, who had the dream, and she says, have nothing to do with him. This isn't going to end well for you, Pilate. This is not going to end well. So Pilate, as was customary at the time, offers up the deal to the Jews. Do you want Barabbas, an actual criminal? 
When we hear that he was a robber, no, he was probably a terrorist. He was probably an insurrectionist. He was a revolutionary. There were zealots at the time of the the, the first century church, zealots for the Jewish cause that wanted to bring down the Roman government, that wanted to bring down the Roman Empire. We learn in the narratives in terms of the Gospels, the two men on either side of of Jesus, they were his companions. They were his comrades. There was going to be three crucifixions that day. But Jesus goes in Barabbas' place. I'm not suggesting that Barabbas is saved. I'm not suggesting he's not. We don't know what happens subsequent to that, that whole ordeal. But it does demonstrate the point, the just for the unjust, the, the concept of substitutionary atonement, the reality that Christ in our stead bore the wrath and fury and justice and judgment of God. So what we find in Samson is typological. It prefigures what we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, may I encourage you to read Judges that way, to read your Old Testaments that way. It's not disconnected from the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. It's preparatory and anticipatory for the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. These saviors in Israel are all about what we find in the new covenant. He will save his people from their sins. In conclusion, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Samson had two types of enemies. Two types of enemy. And we face that today. There's an external threat. I don't want to fill in the blanks. You probably have the mind to know that there is an external threat out there. In case you hadn't noticed, this world is contrary to our blessed God and his Christ. We live in the days that are similar to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain things? They, they take their stand. They take their counsel together against Yahweh and against his Christ. They, they don't want his bonds. They don't want his fetters. They don't want his government. They want to throw it off. So they can't throw off God or they can't rather kill God. So what do they do? They come after the people of God. That's just typical in terms of the enemies of Christ. But again, it's that internal threat that I think is particularly, particularly pernicious. In fact, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. It reads a lot like Romans 1. You're probably all familiar with Romans 1 and how Paul shows how wicked everybody is. Not everybody, but yeah, just about everybody. But he's speaking specifically about the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1 at verse 18 to verse 32. He turns his attention to the Jews in chapter 2 to basically say they're no better. And then in 3 he summarizes that all are guilty before God. Universal condemnation because of sin. Well, 2 Timothy, as I said, reads a bit like Romans 1 in terms of wickedness and evil and vileness. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 at verse 1. But know this, that in the last days, last days is a biblical convention to describe the time between the first and second coming of Jesus. We know that because Paul says to Timothy, avoid these people. Well, if it was in our future, these last days, then how could Paul tell Timothy to avoid them? He wouldn't be there. The last days is the period. It's a biblical sort of eschatological reference between the first and second coming of the Lord Jesus in many contexts. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. If you looked at Facebook in the last, you know, five days, or you looked at Twitter, or you looked at any sort of a news source, you go, uh-huh, yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. That's what we're seeing. That's the kind of wickedness and the lawlessness and the evil that obtains out there. You see, Paul's not describing out there. Look at verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. 
It's not out there that Paul is talking about. It's about in here that Paul is talking about. In the last days, men will love themselves, men will love money, and men will love pleasure. And oh, by the way, they may profess faith in Jesus Christ. Remember that scene in Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus talks about the many who on that day will say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do these mighty deeds in your name? Why do they say, Lord, Lord? Because they're not Muslims. They're not Hindus. They're not atheists. They're professing Christians. They say to Jesus Christ, Lord, Lord, did we not perform for you? You see, brethren, it is the internal threat at times that is more difficult to deal with. You expect Philistines to be dirty, rotten scoundrels, don't you? But you don't expect professors of faith in Christ to be dirty, rotten scoundrels. So when they betray their profession and they display the fact that they're dirty, rotten scoundrels, I'm not suggesting we find fresh jawbones of asses and and slay them. I'm not suggesting that at all. But I am suggesting that we pray to God most high to protect his bride, to protect his church from that wretched influence that works like leaven from within to damage the whole. You know, pagans see this sort of thing as well. Cicero, Roman politician and lawyer, he said, there are two kinds of injustice. The first is found in those who do an injury. We could call those Philistines. The second, in those who fail to protect another from injury when they can. We call those Judahites. Edmund Burke was a British political philosopher. He said, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Right? That's not my calling. It's not what I'm about. It's not what I do. I don't resist the government. I don't resist the civil authority. Well, then pray for those who are going to. Go to your knees in prayer for the brothers that are seeking to stand fast. At least stand behind the Samsons and throw them out into the fray. Do something, brethren, that is consistent with the word of the living God relative to our place in this world today. Secondly, in this passage, we see the faithfulness of Samson. Philistines opposed him. Judahites opposed him. But who was for him? He'd say with the apostle Paul, he could amen what Paul says in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Whether Philistines or whether Judahites that are cowards. If God is for us, who can be against us? Brethren, have we forgotten that? Have we lived in light of the fact or uh, uh, the the thought of the idea that, that that's not true? The same God of Samson is the same God of us in this 21st century church. The deliverer functioned as God called him to. The deliverer ascribed deliverance to God. Verse 18. And then I want to read an extended quote from from Davis. We're just about done. But Davis makes this observation. Now, for those of you who know me, know that I love Davis. Davis's commentaries on what's called the former prophets are excellent. You want to learn Judges, uh, Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. Read Dale Ralph Davis. You might not agree with every single thing, but you're going to learn a lot. Well, he and I differ a little bit. I've got Samson, you know, way up there. He does too, but not quite as far as I do. So he deals with this question, you know, thinking that not he's as bad as Diller and Longman described, but, you know, he's not the most polished fellow on the face of the earth. So, So why him? Why does God use Samson? Have you ever thought, and I'm stealing this right from Davis, just as long as I acknowledge it, I think it's okay. He says in another place, God's not like a surgeon. You know, when you go to get surgery, what, what do the surgeons do? They, they, they have sterilized instruments, right? You don't want to, you know, wipe in a, you know, the scalpel off on their pants and then, you know, going in for the cut. 
I remember when we had children, that first child, you know, their pacifier would fall on the ground. You'd have to go and sterilize it. By the fifth, if you blew the chunks off, then, then it was good to go. <laughs> we think God is somehow like that. He has to use sterile instruments. There's no sterile instruments. He's not going to use a Samson. He's not going to use a Jephthah. He's not going to use a Gideon. Think about Gideon. Gideon wants a sign. God gives him a sign. Gideon wants another sign. God gives him another sign. Have you ever read that? It said, Gideon, one sign should be sufficient, don't you think? God is good. God uses un or insterile, unsterile, not sterile instruments. Listen to Davis. Why would Yahweh use a character like Samson as his servant? Here is a fellow who shatters all our molds. Now, I'm not suggesting that we don't have 1 Timothy 3 pastors. You just be whatever wretch you are, roll out of bed. As long as you can do the job, great. No, no, I'm not saying that. Character matters, conduct matters. And I'm suggesting that Samson's character and conduct was spot on. Oh, there were problems along the way. Sure, yeah, who doesn't have that? Who, who doesn't have some degree of remaining corruption? We're going to Monday morning quarterback, Samson, oh, how dare you? Oh, I can't believe you. We're good at that too. But he says, here's a fellow who shatters all our molds, conventions, and expectations about what a servant of God is to be. He says, during the war between the states, the story spread that General Grant had been drunk at the Battle of Shiloh. About 11 o'clock one night, President Lincoln received his friend, A.K. McClure. McClure was on a mission. As spokesman for a number of Republicans, he pressed his argument for almost two hours on how popular opinion was against Grant, and therefore Grant should be dismissed so that Lincoln himself could retain the country's confidence. Lincoln rarely interrupted. Then, as McClure himself reported it, Lincoln remained silent for what seemed a very long time. He then gathered himself up in his chair and said, in a tone of earnestness that I shall never forget, I can't spare this man. He fights. What would happen if there was no Samson? Where would Judah be? Under Philistine oppression. I can't spare this man. He fights. He may look seedy. He may have trouble with booze. Popular opinion may stand against him, but he fights. We cannot explain Yahweh's choices, though we might vindicate his choice of Samson by a variation of Lincoln's argument. Say what you will about Samson. At least he knew who the enemy was. At least he knew Philistines were for fighting. At least he didn't roll over and play dead in the warmth of the status quo as the mighty men of Judah did. Perhaps we will eventually get over our surprise at the kind of servants that Yahweh delights to use. Why Samson? Because he fights. Samson knows the only good Philistine is a dead Philistine. So Samson is the man for the hour. The Spirit of God is given to Samson so that he can accomplish Yahweh's task in freeing his people from Philistine oppression. Again, I want to end on the high note of the Christology, the typology, the prefigurement of our Lord Jesus Christ in the person and in the work of Samson, the deliverer of the children of Israel. He will begin to deliver the children of Israel from Philistine oppression. That's what our blessed Savior does. That's what our blessed Savior has accomplished. That's what our blessed Savior will be victorious in, with or without the Judahites who whine every step of the way.
Christ has promised to build his church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And in that, we greatly rejoice. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the snapshot of Samson in the Old Testament and how he does point us to our blessed Savior. We thank you that the one who came to his own and his own did not receive him was the one offered up as a sacrifice, a sweet-smelling aroma unto God most high. We pray for the preaching of the gospel as it's gone forth today. We pray that it would go throughout this earth, conquering and to conquer, and that you would save from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Give us boldness and courage in the church of our Lord Jesus to shine his lights in a crooked and perverse generation and to hold forth that word of truth. Bless this church, bless Pastor Mike, bless the deacons, and encourage all of the brothers and the sisters here to continue to stand fast for the glory of God, for the honor of our blessed Savior, and for the good of his church. And we pray in Jesus' name.